Isn't it great that we're all back in church together? That's such a blessing. This has been a two-year process that we have finally accomplished in bringing Abby Johnson to Longview, Texas. I was shocked, appalled, and amazed to find out this morning that on one hand, now remember, we're now inclusive in that number, on one hand, she can tell us how many churches have opened their door to her message. Folks, that's on us. That is on us, and it is a sin and a shame that we have to claim. However, I have a couple of things. I'm not going to introduce Abby. She needs no introduction. She'll introduce herself in living color. I'm telling you, buckle up, baby. But I do have a couple of things I want to share with you. I thought I was through with learning. I'm tired of learning. My brain is tired. My body is tired. I'm learning. I learned yesterday that fear is a much greater motivator than I ever dreamed. I knew fear was a motivator. I had no idea how deep the motivation could be. You're going to hear about that, and you're going to learn about that. My dad used to say, Paula, your past decisions determine your future. I didn't quite understand that to start with since he also told me that until I was born he had two perfect children. So that unfortunately has proven true over and over. But it is true. There are none of us without past mistakes. And we choose to take away with us from those mistakes what dictates our future. The last thing that I learned was I have to make a decision. Do I risk offending my friend, my brother, my sister, my peer, my whomever? Or do I risk offending the heart of God? Decisions, folks. We are blessed, we are excited, and we thank Brother Charles for his pulpit today. I know that's a tough thing for a pastor to give up. We're grateful, but you couldn't be giving it up for a better cause and a better reason. I invite you to welcome Abby Johnson. Well, hello. I'm an Aggie. Yeah, so howdy. Uh, man, I am, I'm so blessed. This is round three for me. So I was at the 815, and then I went to Mason Creek, and then, that's right, right, Mason Creek. And then I'm back here. So um, I'm so blessed by the music ministry in this church. And uh, I, I don't know if it's like a, is it a prerequisite that you have to be like an amazing pianist to work here? Like, I don't get it. Um, I mean, your pastor, and then you're, I already embarrassed her once at the 815, but your, your regular pianist here, your church pianist, she is like, I mean, on fire, folks. You have an amazing uh, church pianist. My mom is a church pianist, so I always pay attention to that. So, um, 
anyway, and then your music ministry here, I mean, it's fantastic. So you are very blessed here. And your choir color coordinated, come on. Like, I love it. I love it. Anyway, um, this is fantastic. So uh, it's really a blessing. And, and honestly, thank you um, to the pastor for giving up this time. I know this is sacred time at the pulpit to uh, give up. So I do appreciate it. And, and it is true. I, I can count on one hand the times that I have been allowed to speak from the pulpit on a Sunday morning, and that's a pretty sad state of, state of affairs for the Christian church in America. But we don't want to talk about this issue. We don't want to talk about abortion because most churches honestly don't want to talk about sin. We want to talk about a very whitewashed version of Jesus Christ. We want to talk about the love of Jesus Christ, but we don't want to talk about the justice of God. Well, how do we know what to repent of if we don't talk about the sin that we need to repent of, right? So I'm going to talk a little bit about my story this morning. I do live in Austin, Texas now with my husband, Doug, and our eight children— I know. Well, it's a lot. The Bible says be fruitful and multiply. We took it seriously. Uh, we, we, um, we have a 14-year-old daughter, Grace, and then we, ha we have four boys. They are uh, eight, seven, six, and six. I know, I was there. Um, and then we have three-year-old twins, twin girls, and then uh, we have a, wait, I lost count. Okay, and then we have a almost two-year-old little boy. And so people are like, oh my gosh, you have two sets of twins, three, two three-year-olds and two six-year-olds. Well, that's, no, our six-year-olds are six months apart. We actually adopted our youngest six-year-old. Um, funny story, I was actually in, well, funny now, I was in um, Maryland speaking at a pregnancy center event, and I'm in this group on Facebook, and, and my best friend had actually posted about a situation that was going on in her church, and a woman there was pregnant, and she had planned to place her baby for adoption, and she had an adoptive family that was ready to adopt, and she was two weeks away from her due date. And uh, this, the, the birth mother, the expectant mother, was pregnant, and she, or the expectant mother was deaf. And the adoptive family called her two weeks away from her due date and said, you know, uh, we decided that since there's a chance that your baby could be deaf, we don't want him. Because, you know, when you have your own kids, you always know exactly what you're going to get, right? So, um, so anyway, so uh, another family was called. They weren't interested. And so anyway, my friend had posted in this Facebook group, hey... Uh, here's the situation, can you please be praying? And if you know anybody who may be interested in adopting this baby, please let me know. So, you know, I saw it pop up, and I said, uh, we will. And so my friend called me, and she's like, are you crazy? Because our youngest, Carter at the time, he was only six months. And I said, sure. I mean, we have so many babies in our house right now. I don't know that we would even notice another one if you threw it in. <laughs> 
So, sure, why not? And um, so she said, okay, well, I'm going to call this mom and let her know that I have found a family. And so I said, great, do it. We are all in. So we hung up the phone, and she called the mom, and I thought I should probably call my husband. And what I really thought was, can I send this in a text? (laughs) But I thought I better not. So actually what I did was I put a thing on Facebook asking about how to hire a private attorney to adopt, thinking maybe my husband wouldn't see it, but he did. And then he was like, wait, what's happening? Are we adopting a baby? And I was like, Okay, now I should call him. So anyway, so I called him, and then um, he was sort of mad. And I don't know if mad's the right word. He was more panicky because, see, my husband is actually a stay-at-home dad. (laughs) So this really affects him more than me. (laughs) So... Anyway, he didn't talk to me for a couple of days, and then um, he finally called me, and he was like, I've been writing a pros and cons list, and he said, um, even, you know, every time I think of just this, th- how crazy you are for doing this, and what a crazy idea this is, he said, I look into the future, and this little boy is always there, and he said, I think we should do it. And I said, honey, I am so glad to hear you say that because the lady doing our home study is going to be at the house tomorrow. (laughs) So, would have been weird if he said no. So, anyway, so two weeks later, a baby was born, and we went to Maryland to meet him and his mom for the first time. And we were trying to think of a, a name for him, and we knew we wanted to name him a, a name that started with the letter J because his mother's name starts with J and her three other children, their names started with J. So we wanted to honor her in that way. And so, um, so we were thinking, 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 and, um, and, <laughs> and um, you know, we actually went to a, a website, and uh, we just, you know, typed in a J and we were going through the list of names and we we got to the end and we saw the name Jude and in the Catholic faith Saint Jude is the patron saint of desperate or lost causes and I thought you know what that's the perfect name for this little boy because there had to be times when his mother felt like she was in the most desperate situation of her life. Here she had chosen life for this child in a very difficult circumstance. And over and over again, people who said they wanted a baby rejected him for various reasons. There had to be moments of desperation, moments where she felt very lost. But every day she continued 
to fight for her child. You know, I think about Judah. I think about his life. I recognize what a miracle it is. He is with us. But honestly, when I think about the numbers of abortions in our country, a million abortions taking place every single year, one in four women having abortions before the age of 45 in the United States, 3,000 abortions taking place every single day in our country, I recognize that every single child that is born in the United States is a miracle. I would love to tell you that I've always stood up here and defended life, but you know that's not true. I worked for Planned Parenthood for eight years of my life. I got involved as a college student. Now, I, I didn't grow up. People are like, well, what kind of person works at Planned Parenthood? Well, I, I grew up in a pro-life Christian home. Um, you know, uh, my parents are actually here. Um, today, I, I grew up in a, a small town, Baptist church. I was baptized when I was eight years old. Um, I grew up knowing the Lord, loving him, serving him. Um, you know, I, I, I can't say that, you know, we were a family that sat around the dinner table and talked about abortion, but that's not to my, my, that's not my parents' fault. It was just a different time. It was the late seventies, early eighties. People, you know, nobody was standing up at a podium and shouting their abortion, right? Nobody was wearing a t-shirt at that time that said, I had an abortion and I'm proud of it, right? It was a different time. People had a, a filter back then, believe it or not, right? People, not everything that came to the brain came out of the mouth, right? And so things were actually taboo back then. Not everybody talked about their abortion. People were not proud of killing their babies like they are today. And so I think my parents just believed that, you know, they taught me the, the biblical pathway to marriage. And so as long as I followed that path, then abortion would never be on the table. So why do we need to talk about something so incredibly unpleasant with our little girl? And so, you know, I grew up hearing that we were pro-life. I grew up hearing that abortion was wrong. But I went to college. I met a, young, I met a woman who was with Planned Parenthood. And Planned Parenthood is all over college campuses because that's where vulnerable men and women are. They are ripe for the picking. They are, you know, ideologues, right? They're finally away from their parents. This is why so many, you know, if my kids never go to college, that will be perfectly fine with me. There are studies out there that say that 80% of Christian kids come back as non-Christian when they go to college. College is a breeding ground for liberalism. It's a breeding ground for atheist ideas. And so these, these organizations like Planned Parenthood, you better believe they are right there waiting to get to our children. waiting to, to warp their sensibilities, waiting to warp everything that you have taught them as they've been growing up and to tell them that they're wrong. And that's what this woman did. She came to me and, and I went to her table because it was hot pink and that's my favorite color, so I wanted to know what this was about. And so 
I went to her and, and said, you know, what is, what is this Planned Parenthood about? I'd never even heard the name Planned Parenthood before in my life. And I went to her and said, what is this about? And she started telling me all the wonderful things that Planned Parenthood does for low-income women. Oh, my gosh, all the wonderful health care and how low-income women would have nowhere else to go for health care without Planned Parenthood. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I do not know what it is like to be a low-income, uninsured, underinsured woman. I grew up with health care available to me whenever I needed it. So all these things that she was telling me, I didn't know they were a lie. Because I haven't lived that experience. But when she was telling me all these things, I didn't know that in our country right now, there are only 600 Planned Parenthoods across the entire United States. There are over 100,000 providers for low-income families to receive comprehensive health care. 600 Compared to over 100,000, yet Planned Parenthood is the only place women can go. You see, it's a lie, but this is what happens with a lie, friends. When people begin to speak a lie enough, everybody will start to believe it. It takes hold. It takes hold in our society. And guys, it even takes hold in our churches. Lies spread like wildfire. So I didn't know that. I didn't know that was a lie. How would I know? She asked me what I thought about abortion. I said, well, I, I've grown up pro-life. And she said, oh, that's great. She said, you pro-lifers are good people. They're just sort of misguided. They don't understand that without abortion, women are going to be forced to go where? Back alleys. Women, they're just going to be dying all over the streets, everywhere. Every corner, women dying from back alley abortions. And these pro-lifers, they just want to take away our rights to our bodies, you know. They want to take away our right to vote. You know, they take away our right to our bodies, and what's next? Now we can't vote. Then what? Well, then, you know, women aren't going to be allowed to wear pants anymore. Just skirts all the time. And I thought, well, I like pants. <laughs> so I signed up immediately. But see, what I didn't know is that what took place in those back alley abortion clinics, so before Roe v. Wade, before 1973, what took place in those back alley abortion clinics is actually no different than what's taking place today inside of safe and legal abortion clinics. Women are still dying from legal abortion, guys. Women are still having their uteruses perforated from dirty instruments. Uterus instruments are still unsterilized, dirty, being used from woman to woman. Women are still getting infections. Women are still bleeding to death on those tables or nearly bleeding to death from hemorrhages. There is gross medical malpractice taking place inside of legal abortion clinics today. And abortion on its face can never be deemed safe. Why? Because in order for an abortion to be successful, a unique and individual human being must be killed. And that is the antithesis of safety. And that is why abortion can never be considered health care. 
You say, I didn't know all that. And I submit to you today, it is what the majority of women in our society do not know that leads them inside of the abortion industry. That's what leads them inside the doors of those clinics. It's what they don't know about their bodies. It's what they don't know about their unborn child. It's what they don't know about the abortion procedure itself. And it's what they don't know about the radical, life-saving, life-changing mercy of Jesus Christ. That's what leads them in those doors. And people say, Abby, how, how did you go from being this you know, good Christian kid? I was a pretty good kid. I didn't do very many things wrong that my parents found out about. How is it that, they're sitting right here, they're like, how is it that I went from being that kid to being someone who ran an abortion clinic? How did I go from being that person to being someone who had two abortions themselves? Abby, how did that happen? And I don't really have a, a just a silver bullet answer for you today except to say, that's how sin works. It's just one little compromise at a time. One little justification at a time. One little excuse at a time. Say, I don't know what your sin is, but I know you've all got them. We've all got sin. We just do it differently. People say, gosh, I don't know how anybody could work at the abortion club. I don't know how anybody could sin that way. Well, I don't know how you sin the way you do. We've all got sin. That's why we're sitting here in a church. Because we all recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. That's why we need Jesus Christ. My career started there, and I, I was there for eight years. I would like to tell you that I had some sort of inner angst the whole time that I was there, but I, I didn't. I, I loved my job. I loved what I did. I believed I was doing the right thing. I believed that I was there helping women. But all of that began to crumble in 2009. I believe the callus that had formed around my heart began to crumble, and all God needed was one crack in that hardness to get in. We were building the largest abortion facility in the Western Hemisphere in Houston, second largest to China. It's now operational. We were going to be aborting babies through the sixth month of pregnancy for any and every reason. That was troublesome for me. I felt like that was just a little too far. That was the first crack. Second crack was when I was asked to double our abortion quota. Certain number of abortions that we had to sell to women coming into the clinic. And people say, Abby, how do you sell an abortion to someone? That doesn't make any sense. Oh, it's very easy. 
actually. You give me a young, scared, not, not she doesn't even have to be young, a scared, vulnerable woman who has the biggest crisis she's ever had in her life, and I tell her, I can solve your problem. I can make it go away for $400. That seems like a pretty good deal. I'm selling her freedom from the biggest crisis she's ever had. Just give me 400 bucks. And she'll do it every time. And the easiest sell, actually, is a Christian woman. You know, fear is a very powerful motivator. And certainly, everyone sitting in here can see that that's true based on the past year we just went through. Fear is very powerful. You know, if you would have told me five years ago that almost every church in the United States would shut down over a virus that has a 96 to 99% recovery rate, I would have told you, you are a liar. But they sure did. Not this one. But a whole bunch of them did. If you would have told me that fear was so rampant in this country that people are staying away from church, that Christians are so scared to die. What are we scared of? I'm not scared to die. Because I know where I'm going. Lord, whenever you want. (laughs) When did we become so scared of eternal life? Look at what we're doing. Fear is a very powerful motivator. You give me a Christian woman, shame is even more powerful. Almost 60% of women who have abortions are Christian women. And that really can't be surprising. Because it's the sin that we don't talk about in the American church. But doubling our abortion sales was something that I didn't understand because I had believed that our goal at Planned Parenthood was to keep abortion safe, legal, and rare. So why were we trying to double our abortion quota? Why did we have a quota to begin with? Second crack. (laughs) 
Then I was asked to come in and assist with an ultrasound-guided abortion. Ultrasounds are not usually used during an abortion procedure. Abortions are usually done in a blind manner. The doctor has a suction instrument. He inserts into the woman's uterus, and he just blindly pokes around inside of the uterus until he thinks he has enough blood and tissue in a glass jar. That glass jar goes into a lab called the POC lab. POC stands for Products of Conception, which is, of course, the baby. But you can't say baby inside of an abortion clinic, so we said POC or POC. Inside of that lab, there's a POC technician. Her job is to take everything out of that glass jar, put it in a baking dish, and reassemble the parts of the baby. Please understand I'm talking about first trimester abortion. I'm not talking about late late-term abortion or anything like that. I'm talking about first trimester, very early abortion. There are parts, there are arms and legs, there are pieces that have to be reassembled. And we did that because if we left an arm or a leg or the head inside of a woman's uterus, she could develop a very serious infection that could be fatal to her. After all the parts are reassembled, The baby goes into a red biohazard Ziploc sort of bag. And all of the bags of babies go into a freezer in the POC lab that the staff jokingly called the nursery. And once a week, a biohazard medical waste company comes into the clinic, picks up all the red bags of babies, takes them to their facility where they are incinerated. And that's the only way I knew abortion to be performed. But on this day, I was called in to assist. We had a visiting physician. He wanted me to um, assist. He thought it would be a good learning experience for me. My job during the abortion was to hold the ultrasound probe on the woman's abdomen so that he would be able to visualize his target, the target being the baby. We did the measurement. The baby was 13 weeks along, still in the first trimester. At 13 weeks, everything is fully formed, arms, legs, fingers, toes, eyes, ears. Every single internal organ that we sit here with today is formed on a baby by 12 weeks gestation. Everything's formed. The baby just needs time to grow. I sat there looking at the screen thinking, wow, this really looks like a baby, but it can't be, right? Because that's pro-choice science. So abortion science tells us that a pregnancy is only a baby if the mother says that pregnancy is wanted. So if a pregnancy is not wanted, then that pregnancy is just tissue, waste, something to be discarded. And this woman was here to have an abortion. So even though this pregnancy looked like a baby, it couldn't be a baby. But it really looked like one. So I stood there watching the ultrasound screen, and I could see the suction tube. The suction wasn't yet turned on. I could see it getting closer and closer to the side of this child. And when it finally touched him, he jumped. And he began flailing his arms and legs as if he was trying to get away from the instruments. But there was nowhere for him to go. When the doctor had everything in the right position, he asked the technician to turn on the suction machine. And he said, beam me up, Scotty. 
and the suction was turned on, and I watched this baby become dismembered piece by piece and go into a glass jar. And I think people think that that's the worst part, that actually seeing the child become torn apart, oh, Abby, that must have been the worst part. But you know what it wasn't? I knew that was going to happen. I had seen the babies torn apart in the POC lab. I knew that was going to happen. That actually wasn't the worst part. The worst part was later came later, knowing that I could have done something, and I just stood there. You know, I could have yelled out, stop. I remember wanting to. I remember wanting to sit this woman up and to say, look, look at your baby. I remember wanting to do something, but I didn't. I just, I just stood there and I watched, I, I watched this baby be killed right in front of me. And I did nothing. And I have to say, that's, that's how I feel most of us are. I feel like that's the position of, of the Christian church, that we know this is happening. We know it's happening 3,000 times a day. It's happening an hour down the road from you. It's happening to women in this church. It's happening to women that you know, and, and we're just standing there. We're just letting it happen. We're not doing anything. We're not getting involved. It's the greatest human rights tragedy we will ever see in our lifetime. And I don't know what it takes. I don't know what it takes to, to, for everybody to feel the urgency that I feel inside of my spirit. I don't know what it takes. Do you have to see the carnage? Do you have to piece together babies like I did? Do you have to actually put them in the garbage disposal and flip the switch? What does it take? What are we scared of? What is this fear inside of us? God did not give us a spirit of fear. Why are we so afraid to offend? Why are we afraid? What are we afraid of? You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of offending the heart of my, my creator. I'm afraid of offending the heart of God. I don't care about offending any of you. You can bet on that. In fact, the more people I offend, the better, as far as I'm concerned. The more toes I step on, the better. Because we have a problem within our church. 
We have a problem with apathy in our church. Dr. Bernard Nathanson was, um, he was an abortionist in the 60s and 70s, probably the most notorious abortion, abortionist in the United States. He wrote a book called The Hand of God. He, he um, aborted about 75,000 children during his time as an abortionist. He even aborted one of his own children. He worked in New York. He was, the, he was one of the co-founders of NARAL, which is the abortion rights Action League, which is still in existence today, one of the most powerful um, abortion activist groups in the United States. He had a, a major conversion in the mid-80s. He put out a, a, a documentary film called The Silent Scream. You can watch it on YouTube. And it shows a baby being aborted live. And uh, you can see the baby opening its mouth. And you can see that the baby is in distress as it's being aborted. And this documentary film, uh, it, it changed the lives. It, it created all of these conversions for many, many abortionists because it was the first time anybody had seen what's taking place inside of the womb of, you know, of the children that are being aborted. And people were seeing it for the first time. And it created this mass exodus of people leaving as abortionists. And he died a few years ago. He died a Christian. Anyway... He said in his book, The Hand of God, he said, when we were starting NARAL, when we were starting all this, when Roe v. Wade was going through in 1973, he said, we knew that abortion would take off like wildfire if the American Christian church would just remain silent. Well, I would say with over a million abortions a year, 3,000 a day, and almost 60% Christian women having abortions, I would say that's wildfire. There is a place for every single one of you in the pro-life movement. And you say, well, what do I do? Well, you've got three pregnancy centers in your town. You can Google it. Everybody's got a phone. Pregnancy Center Longview. Three will pop up. They all need your help. Did you know that Planned Parenthood, our largest abortion provider in our nation and, and in the world, receives more than half a billion dollars of your taxpayer money every single year, whether you like it or not? More than half a billion dollars of our tax money goes to Planned Parenthood every single year, and it increases every single year no matter who is in office. The only thing that continually increases at Planned Parenthood is the number of abortions that they commit and the amount of money that they receive from us. These pregnancy centers that offer help and hope and offer the gospel of Jesus Christ to women that come into them, they receive zero dollars of federal money. And that's a good thing. But they rely on people like you to help them, to volunteer. Every time I go to the store, I pick up a pack of diapers, I pick up a thing of formula, I pick up a thing of wipes, and I go and drop it off at my local pregnancy center. It's so simple. Go take a tour of one of them. Go give them 20 bucks. Go hand them a thing of diapers. It's so easy. They need you. They operate because of volunteers, because of the generosity of people in the church. 
That's one way you can help. In the state of Texas, we just had seven pro-life bills pass out of the Senate and House committees. They're now on to the, the House and Senate floors to be voted on. We have every reason to believe that all seven will pass the House and the Senate and that they will go to Governor Abbott's desk and that he will sign them. We are very blessed to have a pro-life governor in the state of Texas. But these, I think one of your guys, I think your senator is Brian Hughes. I don't know who your rep is. But anyway, Brian Hughes is actually the head of the Senate committee that they passed out of. He's a good guy. Anyway, your senator, your representative, find out who it is. Make phone calls. Thank them. I'm sure they're pro. I know Brian Hughes is. I'm sure your rep is too. Call them. Thank them for voting yes on these pro-life bills. They need to hear from their constituents that are pro-life. Tell them, I'm praying for them. Thank you. I have your back because they will receive, guys, I'm not even joking. I'm not even being, I'm not even exaggerating. They will receive tens of thousands of phone calls from abortion supporters. They need to hear from us. It literally takes 10 seconds to call their office and say, thank you for supporting life. I'm praying for you. So easy. Like I said, you have an abortion clinic an hour away from you in Shreveport. They abort babies through the fourth month of pregnancy there. How easy would it be for once a month, several groups of you, you could do this so that you cover that clinic once a week. There could be four groups. Look how many people are here. There could be four groups of you go every single week. You pick a group. One group goes every single weekend on a Saturday. Saturday's their busiest day. You can go any day you want because you know what? They're killing babies six days a week. There could be small groups of you go carpool, go down there, sit, take a chair, sit for two hours, pray outside of that clinic. It makes a difference. For an hour drive, give me a break. Women would drive three, four hours to get an abortion. You can't drive an hour down to the clinic and sit there and pray? Guys, it's time to sacrifice. Babies are dying. It's time to do more because babies are dying. 3,000 of them a day. And you think, well, what does that make? What difference does that make just sitting outside of a clinic praying? Well, the last conference I went to at Planned Parenthood, they had done, they had run some numbers. And what they found was that when people are outside praying, their cancellation rate for abortions goes up to 75%. Make the time. Take the time. I can't tell you how many times I've been standing outside of an abortion clinic praying, and I've had women walk up to me or somebody else out there, and they say, you know what, the whole time I was, the whole time I was driving here, I was praying for a sign. I was praying for a sign from God not to have this abortion. I remember almost 60% of them are Christian. Nobody wants to have an abortion. None of these women want to have an abortion. That's why the whole idea of being pro-choice is such a lie. Women have abortions because they feel like they have no other choice. They walk up to me and they say, you're my sign. I'm not going to have this abortion today. Guys, just standing there, just sitting there, just praying you could save a life. 
It makes that much of a difference. And it's just so dang easy. There's no excuse not to. We've got to do more. But the first thing we have to do is we have to repent of our apathy, of our complacency. I'm thankful that you haven't seen the things that I've seen. But if you had, there would be a fire inside of you. There would be a fire inside of you to end this atrocity. This is it, guys. There are no other issues. There are other issues we can be concerned about, but none of them are more important than this one right here. Our economy, or anything else, nothing else matters as much as the right to be born. Fear. It's a powerful motivator for us, but often think about the fear. The fear of that 13-week-old baby as it was fighting for its life. The fear of a 20-week-old baby as it's being dismembered in the womb. the fear of a 24-week-old baby as it's being poisoned to death. It's evil. It is evil. And it's happening every day in our nation. What are we going to do about it? I'm asking you today to commit to do something. I'm not blind to the fact that, you know, with one in four women having abortions in our nation, that there are women sitting here who have had abortions. There are, with one in four women having abortions, that means there's one in four men who have been involved in abortion. I'm not, I'm not blind to that. I'm a woman who's had two abortions. I'm not up here to condemn, to judge. I'm one of them. And I'm not blind to the fact that with all the women and men here, that there are people who have been involved in abortion in one way or another. Maybe you drove somebody to have an abortion. Maybe you paid for an abortion. Maybe there's been times where the conversation has come up and you've just been silent. Maybe you just haven't wanted to talk about it because you don't want to offend anybody around you. Guys, it's, it's time to come clean of that. It's time to come clean.
There is nothing too great to separate you from the goodness and kindness of God. And so, um, pastor's going to be at the front. I'm going to be at the front. My friend Amanda, who's a pastor's wife, she's safe. Uh, she's going to be at the front. There's going to be several of us here at the front. And, I, you know, th- this time is open. And, you know, I know we're ba- I know you're Baptist, but you can kneel, too. It's okay. And um, there's going to be some music. And this is just really a time of just coming forward and just repentance. And just offering this to the Lord. And nobody's going to be looking at you or what. We, no, nobody cares. This is just a time to take all of this to the Lord and just be free. And maybe it's not abortion that's on your heart today. Maybe it's something else. But, guys, this is a church. This is a hospital for the broken. We've all got something. And it's time just for us to bring it to God. He wants to take it. He doesn't want you to live in bondage. Anything that we keep in secret, that's, that's Satan's playground. Just bring it to the Lord now.